Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, today is National Caregivers Day. So what we see in caregivers is that sometimes their own physical health will decline because they won't go to those doctor's appointments for themselves. They're so worried to get that care recipient, that person they're caring for, to the doctor. So we'll hear how the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers is helping those who are so important to the health and well-being of others. Now that's coming up in just a moment. But first this, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says the state's weekly vaccine allotment will soon increase to nearly 200,000 doses, and that could begin next week. In a press conference yesterday, the governor said 718,000 Georgia seniors have received at least one dose so far. But given this significant progress made over the last few weeks in vaccinating our current 1A-plus population and the gradually increasing supply we are receiving from the federal government, the state and the Department of Public Health will be finalizing our plans for expanded vaccination criteria within the next two weeks. And in related news, our state's emergency management officials, well, they say they've launched a new website to let folks book appointments for COVID-19 vaccines. MyVaccineGeorgia.com. Again, it's MyVaccineGeorgia.com. will let people sign up for time slots at four new mass vaccination sites around the state. Four state-run mass vaccination sites will be in Albany, Macon, Habersham County, and Hapeville. And they're all set to open next week. Now, keep in mind, this is only for folks who are in the state's 1A-plus category, which includes first responders, healthcare workers, those 65 years and older, and their caregivers. By the way, the Hapeville site for Metro Atlanta, well, that will be at the Delta Flight Museum near Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. And yesterday, more than 2,200 new cases were recorded, which brings the number to this. 798,785 Georgians have so far contracted the virus since last March. And in total... 14,358 Georgians have died. This information coming from the Georgia Department of Public Health. And some promising new data. The rate of newly reported COVID-19 cases and deaths is generally on the decline nationwide. Now, this comes from Johns Hopkins University. They also report the seven-day average of hospitalizations is down in nearly all the states, 49 to be exact, and only Washington State is remaining steady. We're back in a moment. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. As always, this is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. And as always, I'm Rose Scott. 
As I mentioned earlier, today is National Caregivers Day, and so many of you out there are doing so much to help others. And we know the goal of the national campaign is to bring awareness and support the millions of caregivers in this nation. Now, according to AARP, more than one in five adults are considered caregivers in this country. That's about 53 million people in total. And that number has been steadily rising in the past few years as more folks are also caring for aging parents. And here's something else. According to the National Alliance for Caregiving and AARP, the majority of caregivers, we're looking at about 82 percent, care for one other adult, while 15 percent care for two adults and 3 percent for three or more adults. Wow. This number has been steadily rising in the past few years because, as I said, more people are caring for their aging parents. But something that AARP also notes, the health and well-being of caregivers themselves is also concerning. And this coronavirus pandemic has only intensified. We know the challenges many caregivers are already facing. Recently, I spoke with Dr. Jennifer Olson. She's the executive director of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers. Dr. Olson, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Miss Scott. I'm always excited to talk about caregivers. I want you to open up a little bit what maybe people don't understand about the mental and physical toll on someone who's considered a caregiver and what that's like. You know, people maybe, let's think about people post-COVID. They are fatigued, so they need a person who is maybe helping them with errands or helping them get dressed or cook their meals. And while that all sounds like relatively simple things to do. Those are time-consuming activities. They are challenging and stressful. So what we see in caregivers is that sometimes their own physical health will decline because they won't go to those doctor's appointments for themselves. They're so worried to get that care recipient, that person they're caring for, to the doctor. They'll be isolated because even if they're with the person they're caring for, that might be the only person they're interacting with. And so that social network that we know is so important may not be there. Uh, we've seen that caregivers have increased risk of substance abuse, suicidal ideation, hmm. and some other stress indicators. And so our role at the Institute is to think about that population, how to keep those caregivers healthy and well so they can keep doing that caregiving. And when we think about caregivers, typically we think about caregivers as taking care of aging parents, as I mentioned, but also now with this virus, you know, you can be a caregiver for someone who may not necessarily be an an aging parent. So there's more falling into this population. That's right. The numbers you shared, the 53 million, we say that's an underestimate. What has COVID increased that number? Um, How many people who previously were able to take care of themselves or take care of their needs now are relying on someone? And is that happening amongst people in their early 20s or teenagers who are in a caregiver role? We're seeing that increasing. Uh, We're seeing more and more people who are both caregiving and holding a paying job. Um, And so they're working a double or a triple, as Mm -hmm. the case may be, uh, which is adding to stress for individuals. You know, in addition to serving as executive director of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers, you're also an experienced epidemiologist. So you're at this unique crossroad here uh, through your lens. Talk a little bit about this impact the pandemic has had on caregivers in terms of, I guess, and I want to make sure I put this in a way that is respectful in terms of you mentioned their mental health, but also just being able to get through the daily, I don't want to call it the daily grind. I don't want to make it sound like it, this is a task that shouldn't be done because we, as a caregiver, you are saying you're committed to taking care and helping someone. So when we talk about 
this intersection now with the pandemic, what are caregivers facing? I think a lot of it is isolation or challenges in the day to day. So some caregivers took their trip to the grocery store as their break, as their moment of just being away from the house. No matter how much they love that person, I think we all can name somebody who we love greatly, but who also challenges us at various times. And that trip to the grocery store or that um, time spending time with having friends or family come into the house were those points of respite, those points Mm -hmm. of break. And when that isn't there, um, as much as Zoom and phone calls are great, uh, those moments away, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder, some might say. Um, I think it also makes caregiving experiences better. We know the caregiver needs to spend some time doing whatever their moment of self-care, their moment of maybe their drive into the office. You know, mm-hmm. people who are maybe working remotely now don't have that 15-minute drive or whatever that was much longer in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have that moment. And so I think those moments, those times that caregivers had aren't there. And that's adding to the stress that we see. In some recent work we did, we saw 87% of caregivers experience increased stress and anxiety um, as compared to pre-COVID times. So the demand and the challenges are there. You said 86, 87%? 87%, yeah. Wow, that, that, is, that is quite an increase. The work that you all are doing at the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers, I imagine there was not a anything in the handbook that talked about what to do when a pandemic hits, but you all had to shift as well. Yeah, we talk, uh, we work with caregivers in one-on-one coaching programs. You know, that obviously can't happen as freely or we're doing that using virtual means. We had caregivers come together for classes or support groups uh, across the country. That uh, obviously had to change. Um, We would work with caregivers to talk about how they were going to get someone to come into their home, maybe a home care worker or an aide. That for some people is not safe or they're not comfortable doing that. Um, So we've made some organizational shifts. We've also seen an increased demand uh, for caregiver programs. One of our programs that supports military caregivers has seen as many caregivers come in the door this month of January as compared to all the caregivers we worked with last year. So Hmm. it's incredible. The need is there and caregivers are reaching out. But the pandemic has put barriers up for a lot of us in different ways. I mean, even here, we don't, we haven't had a guest in the studio since last March. Obviously that is nothing compared to what you all do. Just ask you, is the virtual enough? I think I know the answer to that. Are there any other ways that you all can provide resources to caregivers during this pandemic that are beyond just a virtual? I mean, are you, are you at a point where y'all can have some interaction or people can come to someplace and, and see someone? I think some of our programs throughout the country are doing um, classroom, social distance classroom education, trying to come up with different methods of a class that would normally be 20 people doing four uh, uh, individuals at a time or something like that to give that connectivity. Because what we know is one of the best ways that you can uh, engage a caregiver is to have that peer interaction that we all can benefit from um, and that we're all kind of struggling with at various points. I think there is an upside. I won't say all of COVID has been bad for caregivers. Mm -hmm. I think some positive changes have happened. You know, an increase in telehealth makes it easier for a caregiver for some types of appointments. Or if you were um, had a loved one who was two or three states away and previously you couldn't go to their doctor's appointments, if it's telehealth now, maybe you could be part of it. So there's 
there's moments, there's parts of this that are positive. And I think um, caregivers are showing us examples of how amazing they are at struggling in challenging times. Um, I've seen pictures of caregivers who have four phones working at the same time to get that vaccination appointment and are working every angle they can. So um, I'm proud to work with this amazingly resilient population that are doing uh, um, critical work every day. Well, that is great to hear for the those that you are reaching, but your concerns for those that you aren't reaching and folks who may be living in what we call a silent struggle, you know, mm-hmm. within homes and behind closed doors and someone listening who may suspect somebody needs support or someone who is a caregiver and, and would like to support, but maybe they feel a certain way about asking for support because they are relied so heavily upon. What do you say to that person? Uh, I often talk about when someone gets married or has a death in the family, you have kind of a set of social actions that you do. You know, you bring them a casserole or you make a phone call or send them a card. When somebody says to you that they're caring for someone, we often all back away from that person because we know it's a tough journey and you don't really know what to do. And should we ask if they need help or or is that awkward? Um, and what does that look like? So we um, we talk about the worst thing you can do for a caregiver is ask, how can I help? And that might sound weird. Really? But because then, because then you're asking the caregiver to tell you a list of things that they need help on. You've just put another assignment on the stressed caregiver. You've made them into the person who has to tell you what they need. So what should we um, say? And <laughs> so we should say, I'm bringing food. What night would you like it? Uh, I'm going to the store. What do you need me to get for you? Um, I think it's much more a proactive approach. Um, and I think that, uh, and I'd imagine you have a number of people uh, that listening today who know someone that mm-hmm. is caring for someone else and have previously just, yeah, that has, we know that that is true. And so, you know, have you reached out to them and offered to connect with them, checked on them, not just asked about the person they're caring for? You know, I think about people calling and saying, how is mom doing or how is dad doing? Uh, turn that conversation around. First, ask about that caregiver. And ask what you can do for them that is or solid. tell them what you can do. That is solid advice. And I have several friends who are caregivers. And I often ask about, hey, how's mom? How's aunt? And I need mm-hmm. to make sure I'm asking my friends, how you doing? Should I say, how are you doing? Should I not say that? Sure. Okay. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Um, but I think, you know, caregivers are often such selfless people. They're mm-hmm. so focused on that person they're caring for. Uh we have a responsibility as those caring for caregivers to connect with them. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Olson. She's executive director of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers. We're talking about the plight of caregivers during this pandemic and how her organization aims to support this population. For our listeners who may not be familiar with the Rosalind Carter, with this initiative, um, tell them about the mission. Sure. So uh, Mrs. Carter started the Institute over 34 years ago before we were even using the word caregiver in our daily language. And our focus is on the health, well-being and resilience of the nation's 53 million and growing caregivers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our job is to keep caregivers healthy and well so they can do the incredible work they're doing every day. You know, your organization released what you all call an action plan of policy and steps for supporting caregivers. It's called Recalibrating for Caregivers, Recognizing the Public Health Challenge. And it makes a case, doctor, that infrastructure, you you want, quote, a better infrastructure that better supports caregivers. 
What does that look like and how do we begin to create this as a whole? What does that look like, that infrastructure? I, I think a lot of it is thinking about how do we interact with caregivers through our medical system? You know, um, doc, as Dr. Jackson was talking and he was speaking about the long haulers or COVID long symptom individuals, I was thinking, oh, what about their caregivers? Are we monitoring them? Are we reaching out to them? Uh, that might be a, a diagnosis or a challenge that that individual has never faced before. It's like something that you didn't learn in elementary school, how to be a caregiver. Uh, and how are we educating people? How are we talking to them when we ask, when you go to the doctor and we ask you, do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you eat your vegetables? Um, we could ask somebody, are you caring for anyone since we know it impacts their physical and mental health and get them started in supportive uh, coaching or education to get them on a journey so that they can be that amazing caregiver uh, so that it doesn't impact their physical health. Well, let's remain with physical health for a moment, and I want to just get your personal opinion. Then, do you think that caregivers should receive priority with, when it comes to the vaccines, especially if they are a caregiver for someone in that sixty-five plus group that we're all encouraging to get the vaccine? Or is that a tough one? I, I think, yeah. I mean, it's a tough question, and you know, every state is working their own their own plans. But um, I think it is critical to think about caregivers in alignment with every kind of level of vaccination. So maybe it's the over 65, it's those with lung or underlying conditions. Who's caring for that individual? Who's in that home with that individual, making sure uh, they stay well? Because if we don't do our job keeping those people healthy, you know, how are we protecting our most critical, our most vulnerable members of the population? How are we making, um, providing caregivers the time that they need maybe to take off work to get their care recipient to that vaccination appointment. I think about um, individuals who you could maybe in some situations there's leave or other opportunities um, when somebody gets sick, but what about that vaccination appointment? How are we making sure caregivers can get their person to that? How are we making sure they get that uh, vaccination appointment taken care of? Let me ask you, doctor, as we begin to wrap up, in terms of research, we know there's always going to be there's always going to be some research going on as it relates to our aging population. We know now with this coronavirus, tons of research will probably continue on. But is there enough research or studies given to caregivers? I mean, I would be the first to say it's a population we know so little about. Um, when Mrs. Carter and I first started talking about this organizational shift, this recalibrate paper. We talked about how much we don't know about this vulnerable population that is at risk and how we don't have a clear understanding of where and what would be useful for caregivers. Are you going to be healthier if you have four siblings or if you have none in your caregiving journey? Is your spirituality and your level of engagement with your faith community going to make a difference in your health and well-being? Um, you know, are caregivers of certain types of conditions better situated uh, like, we don't know any of those basic questions. Um, and so we're advocating all the time for increases in research opportunities. And even as this breaks down in terms of race or economics and finances, you know, mm -hmm. if you are a caregiver and you're struggling financially yourself, you know, that could be a factor. So you're saying that there needs to be more research and more that, that's paid attention to all these sort of subtopics within this population. That's right. And I think um, when we think about uh, race and culture differences in how a family looks at caregiving responsibilities, is it looking at that as a burden or as an honor? And how does that 
lead to uh, caregiver support for that individual? And how are they, um, how is their health and well-being in that journey? Um, so I think we could learn a great deal when we look across cultural boundaries. I want to end with something personal. Why is this so important to you in this area, and especially being an epidemiologist? Why this intersection for you? Because I think of caregivers as one of the most uh, vulnerable and unsupported populations. Both my parents served in caregiving roles, and I watched their physical and mental health decline. Mm. And I thought, we can do better. Why aren't we paying attention to this population who is serving uh, and supporting and keeping our health care costs down and all these other important things? Um, I think we can do better. And that's what I'm inspired by every day. Mm, that's a great way to end this conversation. Dr. Jennifer Olson, Executive Director of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers. We'll have information with the link to your institute on our website. Dr. Olson, thank you so much for taking the time. Good information. Thank you for what you all are doing to serve and help others who are helping others. Thank you. I'm Jasmine Lewis. I live in Midtown Atlanta. I love this community. I've been here for about 10 going on 11 years. Everyone here is really nice. Affordability is definitely a concern here. When we got here in 2009, a one bedroom would be like $975, which at that point was feasible. Now that same one bedroom in that same building is about $1,600 and no renovations have been made. So I'm really looking forward to maybe some community aspects coming back into this neighborhood, most definitely. Rebecca Bagley and my husband is William Bagley. We have access to so many different restaurants. We're actually hoping to get a house but we are not looking forward to the fact... Not being in Midtown. Yes. <laughs> it's just not affordable. I like how like what that. do you like about the neighborhood turned into, I can't afford the neighborhood. <laughs> yes, yes. I still like am dreading leaving the city. My name is Amy Stone and I would love to see the light rail system get hooked up to Emory. I think that would relieve a lot of traffic congestion and if Atlanta could get more connected through alternative transportations other than cars, it would become the city that it could be. I'm Matthew Faulkner and I live in Midtown. Definitely seen a lot more uptick in crime, like kind of just walking around. Things just feel a little different than the beginning. I think with the support of police and we treat each other with better respect that we're gonna see a whole better community overall. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. With the new administration comes a new set of goals and policies. And you may recall back on his first day in office, President Joe Biden signed a number of new executive orders, one of them calling for 
$2 trillion to address climate change. 40% of this funding will reportedly go to, quote, disadvantaged communities. Now, here in our region, several cities, governmental entities, colleges and universities have always implemented not just policies, but actionable initiatives related to climate change. And now comes a partnership between two of the aforementioned. The city of Decatur and Agnes Scott College are currently collaborating to create a new climate resilience plan. The plan lists goals such as preserving green space and preparing for potential climate change related natural disasters. We'll talk more about that. So join me now with more is Susan Kidd, executive director for the Center for Sustainability at Agnes Scott College, and David Nifong, a Lead for America fellow with the City of Decatur Department of Public Works. Thank you both for taking the time. Thank you. Happy to be here. Susan, let me start with you. Before we dig into the city of Decatur and all of this, inform our listeners what you do at Agnes Scott there. Yes, thank you for asking that. So Agnes Scott started on a path toward being a more sustainable campus in really 2007. Mm -hmm. So we've been at this for a while. As you mentioned, um, there's some new encouraging uh, signs uh, on the horizon, but, but this work has been going on at colleges and universities for quite a while. So we focused at the Center for Sustainability at Agnes Scott College on everything from curriculum to um, student interns to recycling, composting, and then to climate change activism. And so that takes us into the energy um, space, which is where we spend a lot of our time. And David, you're a Lead for America fellow. Tell us about that. So Lead for America is a is an organization that was started a couple of years ago by recent college graduates, and its mission is to give high-performing college graduates a path to serving their local communities. I think you wouldn't typically see a person like myself in this position, and Lead for America is trying to um, create a pathway for um, people to go back and serve their communities. So we have fellows in city, county, state, tribal governments, mm-hmm. nonprofits, and regional associations across the country um, doing a lot of great work. Susan, I want to come back to you for a moment, because when you hear David talk about, you know, where the new leadership could come out of his generation, and I'm not putting anybody in particular age, but how important is it to know that we are training, you know, some of the future leaders and movers and shakers as it relates to sustainability in in this nation? This is such an important point. And it's why I specifically wanted um, David to join this conversation today. Um, Because at Agnes Scott College, we've been able to have students do the majority of our sustainability work. Um, They're in the forefront with our calculation of our carbon footprint every year, with our climate action plan that shows us how we'll be climate neutral neutral by a certain date. Um, And then this project, um, with David being a recent graduate of Emory, and we had our own student who graduated in December, Brittany Judson, who actually wrote this climate resilience plan. So she was our intern and our work study student for the past two years and really came to um, Agnes Scott with some experience in climate resilience from a West Coast job that she had Mm -hmm. and was able to hit the ground running. So these are these are the implementers, right? These um, our current students and our um, soon to be graduates. Um, and this is part of their professional development is to learn about this really cutting edge issue. And I also want to just for our listeners for a moment, are there certain unique, I guess, climate change issues to this region that we're in that may not be out west or may not be, you know, let's say in upstate New York? What do you think those are? Susan, I'll let you go first. 
I grew up in this region, and some days I think the weather is more like when I grew up now than it um, used to be, but with a couple of big differences. Mm -hmm. um, we're back in a pattern of cold winters and wet winters, but now we have these extreme rain events. It's there in for I think for anybody from the Piedmont of Georgia, these are these are frightening. Um, in Atlanta, we get these major. Um, levels of rain in short periods of time and we have a lot of paved surfaces so this is when we get the runoff and we get the flooding in places that may have never flooded um, before at all much less as frequently as they are now so that's one of our our major events we're also getting a much higher level of wind than uh, we had gotten in the past so that we're getting the storms that are coming up from the gulf and they're proceeding into this region at a high wind force level that is just not what we're used to and to be honest not what we're very prepared for right with mm -hmm. our level of tree canopy um etc so those are those are two major issues david what do you think in this region are there some issues some unique climate change issues yeah i think i would have to add heat so under business as usual scenario i think we're looking at upwards of 45 to 50 days over 95 degrees um, by mid-century um, and so um, that will really add another um, level of stress to uh, current populations, especially those that are disadvantaged or living in disinvested uh, communities that don't have that tree canopy that Susan is mentioning. Um, heat, I think, is the number one uh, weather-related killer in the United States. Um, and so it's one thing that we all have to kind of do our part in um, mitigating um, and making it um, better for not only current or future generations, but people that are living here right now. Mm -hmm. Susan, how did this partnership, this collaboration begin with Agnes Scott College in the city of Decatur? Yeah, so I mentioned that we started sustainability work quite a mm -hmm. while ago. And what really that sprang from is that Agnes Scott College signed on to a national pres college president's climate commitment. Mm -hmm. So in, in doing that, we committed to do this carbon footprint calculation regularly and to um, have a plan to be climate neutral or carbon neutral by a certain date. For us, that's 2037. So it seemed a long way away in uh, 2008, but it's getting closer by the, by the moment. So we reduced our footprint by about 30% now, which is significant, but we have a long way still to go. And then uh, several years ago, that same national organization that promotes college presidents and colleges and universities committing to climate um, ask if we would look at a second commitment of resilience. So um, they specifically said, um, take on a new leadership role of climate resilience planning. And when you do that, invite your municipality to join you. Well, let me ask you this. For someone listening who says, well, give me a definition when you talk about climate resilience here. No, absolutely. I, I think about the first time I heard the word and, you know, I had sort of a dictionary definition of uh, being tough and, mm -hmm. and recovering from adversity, um, maybe more of an individual, a human reaction. And that's really what it means, but on a climate scale, on a response to mm -hmm. climate. So this climate action that we had done already at Agnes Scott, taking that, that leadership role, that's to respond, that's to plan ahead. That's for us to reduce our own carbon emissions, uh, our impact. Resilience is to say, how are we going to respond to these impacts, the ones you asked mm -hmm. us about? How are yeah. we going to respond to extreme heat, to flooding, 
um, and to higher winds? How, how are we going to be emergency prepared as well as energy prepared? So coming up with the plan, that's also, it appears it's going to be in phases. David? Yeah. So if you look at the actions that we've identified in the short term, those are already things that we've been doing. And I would want to thank um, some really strong forward thinking leadership from um, city commission and then the dedicated work of staff to get us in that point where we're already um, reworking our tree ordinance and uh, completing a stormwater master plan where uh, in the next few months so hoping to start uh, on a clean energy plan to transition us away from fossil fuels um, and then we know that that's just the tip of the iceberg there's so many more things that need to be um, happening um, and so we do have to do this in phases but we're going to be committed all the way. And David, your role in all of this, are you helping the city of Decatur in terms of outlining their strategy for these plans, whether it's short-term or mid-term or long-term? Yeah, um, and I think the uh, city of Decatur is a great place to work, and it's a place where staff is uh, really collaborative. Um, but sometimes you do need a dedicated person in this role to make sure that all of these things that are or should be integrated are integrated and um, can take the time to uh, be at these meetings um, like with Agnes Scott and so that's where I was fortunate to come in and hope to be here for a long time. Susan how will you all assess or will you all be responsible for assessing you know the implementation of these different plans and the different phases what will you all offer the city of Decatur in terms of support? Well we really are in this together and we we knew that when we invited the city of Decatur to in to join Agnes Scott in this planning process and they were immediately joined in. And as David said, one of the things we agreed to is that their ongoing plans would be integrated into this larger plan, that this would give a framework for that so that we wouldn't be asking our, our very stretched friends and colleagues in Decatur to do more, um, but it unless it was collaborative. So, um, and then most of the work that we do under these national commitments, there's really, it's pretty much self-analyzed. So we will be doing a constant sort of check-in. We're gonna be in a regular meeting, um, an evaluation process that we're agreeing to between Agnes Scott and Decatur. And so we'll be we'll be self-evaluating how we go, but, but together, not uh, one of us, I hope, judging the other. When we talk about climate and or climate change and addressing the issues with it often or lately we've been hearing a lot about equity and the importance of that susan is that a part of this at all as well absolutely i was um i was talking to one of my colleagues nathaniel smith at the partnership for southern equity know him well about mm-hmm. their, yes yes about their work and our work and one of the his quotes that i've always stick by is he says can a world be truly sustainable if it's not just, and it, it cannot be. And I would add that um, a college or a city um, can't be climate resilient without being just and equitable. And so this past summer, we had some community input sessions. Um, as you're experiencing doing all this work remotely has been interesting. We came at the point of the community input um, sessions right as we went into uh, remote working, but we were able, our student, um, Brittany Judson, was able to put together with David some community events. So we plan to um, gather that information and be absolutely sure that we have equity at the forefront of the implementation of the plan. And David, you kind of touched on it earlier uh, in your opening statement, but again, if you could just sort of take that further in terms of how equity plays a part in all of this. Yeah, um, and so I think I I mentioned it. Um, we know that these climate 
climatic impacts. We're going to uh, touch on certain communities much more uh, strongly and more um, harmfully uh, than others. Um, and so putting those communities at the forefront of this planning. Um, and so we, we did a little bit of that in the creation of this climate resilience plan, but then it's also woven through each and every um, plan that the city has done and will be doing. Um, I think you also had us ask a question about accountability. Mm -hmm. um, and so the city has a long history of not only writing, but executing plans. It's something that our residents expect. And so when you, when you talk about accountability, I want people and uh, Decatur residents and those involved to hold us accountable to the things that we've put in this plan and making sure that equity is at the forefront and when it's not um, letting us know. Is there any issue that we haven't covered that you all think should also be a priority? David, I'll let you go first. Nothing that I can think of, Susan. I think um, this is a, a real Agnes Scott College thing to say, but um, we are really thoughtful about women in climate justice mm -hmm. um, in our work. And so as we prepare our students for profession, the professional world, this is um, a real getting experience in this planning process and in the implementation, it's gonna be important. We do plan to have a conference in the fall on women in climate justice. So mm -hmm. um, the, there's, you know, and that's part of the whole um, puzzle of equity and thinking ahead on, you know, women in the field and women addressing this, both what's happening at the community level now, globally, nationally, and locally. So, Susan Kidd, Executive Director for the Center for Sustainability at Agnes Scott College, and also David Nifong, a lead for American Fellow with the City of Decatur Department of Public Works. And we we're talking about a, a partnership that you all have as it relates to adopting plans and phases in terms of a new climate resilience plan. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good information for our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for all you do. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The Metro Atlanta Chamber is spearheading a new regional initiative, calling it a multi-year, multi-step action plan. The ATL Action for Racial Equity is being created, I'm going to quote him here, to address effects of systemic racism impacting Atlanta's black community. And we're going to learn a lot more about this. Joining me now is Metro Atlanta Chamber President and CEO, Katie Kirkpatrick. Katie, thanks for taking time. Welcome back to the program. Well, thank you. I think it has been several months since you and I had a conversation. And what's interesting is, is that um, our our dialogue today will build off of what you and I talked about mm -hmm. in June, which was an emphasis as I came into the role on, on three areas, uh, public health, uh, economic recovery, and then, of course, racial equity, which is what we're going to talk about today. 
You know, in the release regarding this initiative, I'm going to quote what Delta Airlines CEO Ed Bastian said. He said, quote, this is a moral and economic imperative as we work to grow our region's competitiveness today and into the future. And so, Katie, I imagine as it relates to the intersection of racism and business, you agree this is an an imperative, moral and economic, huh? I agree. Absolutely. It's moral and it's an economic imperative. And Rose, what I'll share with you is as we moved through the summer, uh, we were diligent in taking a look at data. I thought that was an important place to start. And I know that you know some of these statistics, Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's worth repeating. If a child is born into poverty in Atlanta, uh, it's a 4% chance of escaping poverty. Uh, Atlanta, unfortunately, also holds title to um, the worst uh, income mobility Mm -hmm. uh, in the nation. Yet, we have um, an immense um, and uh, growing and expanding business community that is is highly successful. So that gap that exists, that disparity, um, is very important when you look at the data. Uh, and so as we, we leaned into that data, it was really apparent um, and I don't think surprising either, but in support of that moral and economic argument uh, that it that as a business community, we are one of a larger group, but that there is action needed um, from the collective whole. Uh, and one last thing that I'd like to, to share with you, Rose, too, is that um, the late Tom Cunningham, who mm-hmm. was our chief economist, mm-hmm. who helped us um, underpin a lot of this work, did some analysis. And when he was looking at um, our, our Black community and our Black workforce, and, and he said, well, what if, what if all of the able-bodied um, you know, Black workforce were able to be gainfully employed, skilled, and you know, filling the positions, what would that look like in the in the pockets, right? What would that income distribution look like? And we know that it would be roughly around a $500 million positive impact. And that's substantial. So that really builds into that economic imperative. Um, but it's also a moral imperative as well. So when we're talking about this, and it's 2021, and that's a whole nother conversation, um, because I think as a nation, we've been down this road before and folks trying to figure out, OK, what's at the core of this? And we know that systemic racism has been a big part of a lot of inequities that still exist and that are still around. So in your research and with this action plan, who other than than, than Mr. Cunningham and, and what a, a great, great asset who else was involved in putting together this action plan? Because when you talk about something like this, you also have to have make sure you have representation of the folks that it will that you're directly trying to impact. You know what I'm saying? So do, do, take us through that. Who I do was part of this this I, body? I do, and yeah, and I'm glad I'm glad that you asked that question too because the genesis of the work too, right, was um, our business leaders really listening. Uh, especially in that May-June timeframe, to their workers, right, Mm -hmm. who were really elevating their voices and sharing what I say in some instances heart-wrenching stories of experiences either in the workplace or in the community. And I think that really drove us toward this action. So when we were thinking about how do we build a plan, um, we began um, by identifying, of course, the data also looking at where um, business strengths would intersect with it. 
And then, of course, who did we need to talk to? Who did we need to hear from? And so I always start with the worker, right? So several business leaders, Ed Bastian um, was certainly one of them. Uh, Raphael Bostic, who mm-hmm. is the president of the Atlanta Fed Reserve Bank and has been very outspoken on this issue. And Rose is our 2022 chair of the chamber. Uh, and that hopefully will also help the continuity on this um, initiative as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had folks like Jay Bailey sure. uh, with the Russell Center for Innovation. Um, I'm trying, Wendy Stewart with Bank of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Latrice Ryan with the Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative, uh, and so there was a steering committee that we put put together of, and I'm 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 not naming all the names. I wish I sure. did. Michael Russell, um, others. Um, but after we got through that process and had them really kind of push hard mm-hmm. on on not only the data but what actions could be taken, and I think that was a really clear direction was this can't just be a pledge it has to be actionable and measurable and that's very important so i'll close by saying this as we um got to the end of putting together what i would tell you is a possible plan it is not a perfect plan it is a possible um initiative we did reach out to i think over 50 stakeholders Mm -hmm. and briefed them on the initiative and asked for them to give us feedback so Anywhere from an Andy Young and a Bernice King mm-hmm. um, to Nathaniel Smith uh, and others in the community, just making sure Kevin Muriel uh, with Cascade United Methodist Church, making sure that we shared the information, but we also listened back. And so that is how we landed where we are today. But I do want to ask you about this, because when it comes to racial equity and you've got a lot of businesses who have signed on committing to diversity and inclusion, but when it relates to racial equity, we know that it also uh, that means you should address wages and salaries, for example. Are you all taking any are there is there any initiative tied to that and maybe perhaps the minimum wage increase? Are you all tackling that? Yeah. So if let me let me at least share with you um, the way that we have structured mm-hmm. um, the initiative and I'll be as quick as I can. Um, But we identified four areas initially. So the first is corporate policies. Mm -hmm. The second is inclusive economic development. The third is education. And the fourth is workforce development. Each one of them has a problem statement and key performance indicators underneath it. So to get to the question around pay, if you look under corporate policies, one of the key performance indicators is pay equity. Mm We are asking our businesses that are committing to this initiative to move through the process of performing not only a review of pay equity, but implementing where change needs to happen. And so I think that's an important step to the to your question about addressing, um, you know, the equity piece as it relates to salary. Um, as it relates to minimum wage and living wage, uh, as an organization, we don't currently have a position on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do want to pull back for a second um, and say that when we look in the totality of this initiative, it is largely driven by um, wealth creation in the Black community. Mm-hmm. And that is one thing that didn't, I don't think I touched on is this is a plan specifically built for the Black community Black businesses and Black talent. And an important component of that is building wealth and generational wealth for the community. Finally, then, that being the case, how do you all measure? I mean, this is a multi-step, multi-year action plan. Um, 
of course, obviously it takes more than a few years. You're talking about building black wealth and generational wealth. But how do you measure these actual outcomes? How do you measure that you're meeting or, or do you have goals? How do you measure that? No, absolutely. We do. We have um, more than, gosh, it's not, it's more than a dozen. It may be even close to 18 or 19 key performance indicators that we have identified. And on an annual basis, we uh, will uh, perform an assessment and give a report to the community on what progress is being made. And and Rose, I am an engineer. Mm -hmm. And so I I think very linear, linear fashion and irrational fashion. And I believe that if we don't measure, then how do we make progress? And so this was a key component, not only from from my perspective, but also from the business leaders that um, we have to measure. We've got to see where progress is being made. And quite honestly, Rose, if something isn't working, then we need to change course. And it's okay to say that it didn't work. Um, But I think that that honesty um, and transparency with the community will help this initiative be successful. And we'll have a link on our website to the ATLRacialEquity.com website as well for more information. Metro Atlanta Chamber President and CEO Katie Kirkpatrick, thank you so much for taking the time. As always, we want to bring you all back. We want to make sure this is something that we stay on top of and make sure our listeners are well-informed of this initiative. Thank you, Rose. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. A little breaking news within this hour. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is announcing the state will receive more than $552 million in stimulus funds via the Federal Emergency Rental Assistance Program. Now, this is designed to help landlords and tenants behind on rent and utility payments due to the pandemic. According to the governor's office, the Department of Community Affairs will administer these funds. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer rides a bike. His name is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of the day's show, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you all know Closer Look is weeknights at 8 p.m. And we have a podcast just like everybody else. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like, whenever you like. Don't miss a show. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Enjoy this long music bed. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us. 
WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.